This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And with that, he whispers, got up. You know somebody. No, there isn't any of that. No, there isn't any of that. You already know that you don't believe me, so come see for yourself. The bathroom has a dead body in the tub. The neighborhood of West Campus in Austin, Texas, would be angered and devastated by the discussion of every other young woman's body on August 18, 2005, with clues pointing towards a disturbed individual known as Colton Pitanyak. In the end, a Mexican SWAT team would become involved as a result of the frenzied search for his location, which would also lead to the initiation of investigations on a global scale, as well as the capture of additional suspects. What became of Jennifer after she went into hiding? Had she found out that one of her closest pals had lied to her? And what was it that ultimately brought to her sad demise? We would like to thank you for returning to our channel. In today's episode, we will be discussing how the case of Jennifer Kay's disappearance was solved. I just wanted to let you know that I update this site regularly with weird cases that have either been solved or remain unexplained. Consider becoming a subscriber to our channel if you believe that this is the sort of content that would interest you. Now, without further ado, let's get started with the narrative for today. My pal. Take a deep breath and walk with me through the dark. This is the situation that Jennifer A. finds herself in. The state of Texas is the setting for today's tale, which takes place there. Now, in the world of true crime, Texas has a somewhat notorious reputation, and there are many of reasons why this is the case. Although many of us think of Texas as a state with a high rate of violent crime, the reality is that Texas is not even close to having the highest rate of violent crime among the states. That distinction goes to Alaska. However, Texas does have a huge population, and as a result, the overall number of crimes committed in the state has increased quite a bit in recent years. Don't be fooled by this person's reputation. It is still a sizable prosperous state that has a great deal of variety in its products. There is something for everyone in this state, from the bustling metropolises of Austin and Houston to the arid, red sands that may be found in the state's many canyons and national parks. A young lady by the name of Jennifer Cave might be found calling the city of Austin her home. On March 12, 1984, Jennifer Cave was brought into the world by her parents, Sharon and Charles Cave. She was one of four siblings and part of a warm and welcoming family that was very huge. Jennifer had a happy and secure upbringing throughout her childhood. Each of the six of them kept an eye out for the others, 
and they did everything in their power to help and support one another whenever and however they could. When Jennifer was a child, she had a positive attitude toward everything she accomplished, and she placed a high value on her academic achievements. She worked diligently on her studies and immersed herself in extracurricular activities such as cheering. Jennifer's parents divorced when she was still in the early years of high school, which led to her mother meeting a new partner named Jim Sedwick. Jennifer's name was Jennifer Sedwick. Jim was a good man. He embraced his new family and did everything in his power to make Sharon's children feel like they were a part of his own. The recently established family eventually settled in the coastal city of Corpus Christi, whose name derives from the Latin phrase meaning the body of Christ. And if you were to ask me, I'd say that everything sounds extremely Texan. By the time 2002 got around, Jennifer had successfully completed all of the requirements necessary to earn her high school diploma. She envisioned a prosperous future for herself working in finance and had aspirations to pursue that field. Because of this, she decided to investigate the universities and institutions that were located within a reasonable distance of her family. She was eventually able to break out on her own when she got a place for herself at Texas State University. This marked the beginning of her independence. But unfortunately, Jennifer decided to withdraw from school after only one semester, and as a direct result, she relocated back to Austin. Jennifer had not given up on her dream of working in the financial industry, despite the fact that she had left her previous job. She came to the conclusion that she needed to begin on a more manageable scale, and as a result, she enrolled in a finance program at the Austin Community College. Now, during this time period, it was becoming increasingly expensive to live in the city of Austin, so Jennifer would spend her days studying and her nights working as a waitress. She eventually became very acclimated to the lifestyle of a student, maintaining a healthy balance between studying, working, and of course, going out to parties. Jennifer was well-liked by a large number of people. She was widely loved by everyone and was a natural when it came to having fun. But alas, as is the case with a significant number of college students, this territorial way of life frequently comes hand in hand with drug usage. This was the case for Jennifer, who experimented with substances such as marijuana and other party drugs on occasion but never developed a consistent use for them. Her academic pursuits were considerably more important to her than her partying lifestyle. However, this was not the case with all of her friends. During her time spent studying in Austin, she had been especially close to one of her pals in particular, and his name is Colton Pitanyak. Arkansas was Colton's home state, and he was a devout Christian. The most of his youth was spent serving the church and trying to live up to the expectations of his parents. Christ the King School was Colton's junior high school of choice before he moved on to the Catholic High School for Boys in Little Rock, 
where he continued to mature academically and put up his best effort for the entirety of his schooling. This resulted in his receiving multiple prizes. He was a member of the National Merit Scholarship Program and finished his senior year of high school ranked among the top 10 students in his class. He even finished 166 overall in the state of Arkansas. Because of all of Colton's hard work, he was awarded a scholarship to study finance at the University of Texas at Austin. Because of this, it was only natural for him to run into Jennifer at some point in the future. Unfortunately, after coming to Austin in the year 2000, Colton turned into a party animal as a result of the lifestyle that he'd found there. Being away from home and from his parents seemed to generate a rebellious tendency in him, and this may have been the case. This led to, in the end, Colton had a problem with substance abuse and alcoholism, both of which were difficult for him to kick, and eventually he checked himself into a drug rehabilitation center. The young man frequently relapsed into his drug use not long after he started his studies, and in the year 2004, he was busted by the police with cocaine in his possession when he was caught in the act. In addition to that, he had illegally obtained sleeping drugs and anti-anxiety medication. Colton entered a guilty plea for a misdemeanor and was sentenced to 20 days in jail. In spite of this, his attorney made a snide remark to the effect that he was still up to his eyebrows in narcotics, and that it was virtually certain that Colton would continue to abuse substances, thereby linking the two probabilities together. Jennifer and Colton had a strong relationship. They were quite familiar with one another and spent a lot of time hanging out and learning together. There was no romantic involvement between Jennifer and Colton because, to put it plainly, there was no spark between the two of them. During the course of their friendship, each of them even had separate romantic relationships. In addition to this, one of Colton's previous girlfriends, who we'll refer to as Laura Hall, exhibited an especially unhealthy obsession with him. She had dated Colton in the past and catered to his every whim, despite the fact that many who knew both of them well claimed that he was unkind to her and that she had treated him like dirt. Soon after they started dating, Colton decided that he could no longer be with Laura and ended their relationship. However, despite this, he never showed any reluctance to allow her to sleep on his bed. This is important knowledge to keep in mind for the future. Going back to Jennifer in the year 2005, at this point in her college career, she had put in a total of three arduous years of study and was just about to graduate. But despite this, she had grown rather attached to her friends in Austin and she had no intention of leaving. Instead, Jennifer decided to look for work in the neighborhood and surrounding areas. And at that time, in August of 2005, triumph was at last realized. At long last, she was successful in finding employment at a law company in Austin, where she was scheduled to begin working as a legal assistant. 
This position would serve as a solid stepping stone into the legal profession and eventually finance. After hearing the wonderful news, Jennifer didn't waste any time in calling her mother to tell her all about it. Sharon could tell that her daughter was overjoyed with the new work and that she had regained her previous level of self-assurance over her life. The 17th of August, 2005, was the day she was scheduled to start her new job. Jennifer intended to get an early night's sleep and be in bed by 10 o'clock. Every night in order to feel refreshed and prepared for her first day of work. She had assured herself that this would help her. Nevertheless, later that evening, my phone rang. It was Colton who could be heard on the other end of the phone line. Jennifer was the recipient of his congratulations after he had recently learned about her new employment. As a result, he inquired as to whether or not she would be interested in going out for a couple of drinks to celebrate. Even though Jennifer was aware that she would need to be awake bright and early the next day for work, she accepted her friend's request to talk about her new job since she really needed to talk to someone about it. The invitation was for no more than a couple of drinks, right? They came to an agreement that they would meet on 6th Street, which is known as the student mecca in downtown Austin for drinking, dining, and partying. Colton, on the other hand, was engaging in behavior that was quite the opposite of what Jennifer was doing as she chose the more responsible option of remaining sober and having only a few of drinks throughout the lunch. Throughout the course of the evening, he had a habit of getting up and leaving, and he appeared to be drinking continuously. Fortunately, there were other people in the area, but those who were there were beginning to be wary of Colton and everything else. During this time, they were able to observe that Jennifer had entirely recovered her sobriety. 10 o'clock. Passed, as did 11 o'clock. And then the clock struck 12 o'clock. Jennifer and the rest of the gang continued to be out despite this. She needed to get home for a job in the morning, so she wrangled Colton and offered to give him a ride home. After assisting him in locating his phone, the two of them left for the night together. Jennifer gave one of her other close pals, Michael Rodriguez, a call just after the stroke of midnight. Michael could tell throughout the entire chat that Jennifer was making an effort to rein in her intoxicated height. This was evident to Michael. Michael recalls Jennifer reprimanding him for punching a car window and for peeing on another vehicle. Jennifer also accused Michael of urinating on the vehicle. Because Michael and Jennifer did not know one other very well, Michael found it odd that Jennifer would call him, of all people, so late at night to inquire about Jennifer's well-being. Jennifer was concerned about Michael. She responded by saying absolutely, and that there was no need to be concerned about anything. After that, she assured him that she would give him a call as soon as she arrived home in harm, but she never did give him that call. August 17, 2005 Sharon's Wednesday was quite typical, but there was one bright spot in the otherwise unremarkable day. Sharon was thrilled that her daughter Jennifer would be starting a new job today, 
and expressed her delight for her. However, she warned that her joy would soon be replaced by anxiety when later that morning, she answered the phone to find Jennifer's new supervisor on the other end of the line. Jennifer was late for her first day of work and hadn't shown up. The job that she had appeared to be enthusiastic about just the day before, her stomach immediately fell as she, too, was wondering why Jennifer had failed to message her that morning, and she attempted to phone her daughter. Her stomach immediately dropped as she was wondering why Jennifer had failed to message her that morning. On the other hand, there was no response. The result would be the same whether it was tried for the second, third, or fourth time. A static click through to voicemail. Sharon was well aware that the authorities would not make much of an effort to locate a college student who went missing after a night out on the town so she suspected that something was up. In an effort to gain some insight into Jennifer's whereabouts and activities, Sharon contacted her phone service provider. She was able to collect many phone numbers that her daughter had phoned, and one of these numbers was Michael Rodriguez's. This was during a time when privacy policies were less stringent. Therefore, she was successful in doing so. When Michael spoke to her, he explained everything that had happened over the night, including the fact that Jennifer had contacted him at midnight and informed him that she was with Colton Pitanya. Michael assured her that Jennifer did not appear to be under the influence of alcohol, but that Colton did appear to be the source of part of her irritation on the other end of the line. Sharon had received a list of contact information from the service provider and one of the numbers on that list was that of Colton. As a result, Sharon decided that Colton should be her next point of contact. But while I was talking to Colton, he told me that he didn't know where Jennifer was and that she wasn't with him. He also indicated that he didn't know where she was. From her residence in Corpus Christi, Sharon did everything that was in her power to do. She was aware of the next step that she needed to do, which was to call the police. She contacted Colton once more out of courtesy to inform him that the police may soon be around to ask him a few questions, as she had now formally reported her daughter as missing. Colton was informed that the police may soon be around to interrogate him over the disappearance of her daughter. However, as the next day grew closer, Police efforts continued to be delayed, and there was still no sign of Jennifer. The absence of sound was excruciatingly painful to listen to. Both Sharon and her lover Jim, Jim, were experiencing extreme levels of anxiousness. In light of this information, they got in their car and headed to Austin to conduct their own investigation there. They were informed by the police that Jennifer's car had been found in front of Colton's apartment, but in order to lawfully enter the building, they would first need to wait for a search warrant to be issued. On the other hand, Sharon and Jim felt that they had waited long enough at this point. They got into the car and drove to Colton's apartment, where they knocked on the door. It was unfortunate that there was no response. But Jim wasn't going to let it get him down. He was not going to allow so much suspicion slide by like this. So instead, 
He took Madison to his own hands and smashed one of the apartment windows before climbing inside. He did this because he was not going to let so much suspicion go by like way. In spite of the limited square footage, the interior of Colton's studio apartment was a complete mess, with clothes, mess, and various other items of garbage strewn all over the floor. The drawers of the cabinet had been removed, and there was a pungent stench in the air as a result. Jim was in luck because there were only two more rooms in the apartment, which meant that this wouldn't take up too much of his time. As he walked through the walk-in wardrobe, he noticed that the door to the bathroom was propped open, and the light was still on. Jim opened the door with some trepidation, and unfortunately, this decision would have a profound effect on the rest of his life. The scene that he would then find was one that was genuinely terrifying. The bloody remains of a woman were found lying in the bathtub, and to make matters even more upsetting, she was in several pieces. Her hands and her head were cut off from the rest of her body, yet the rest of her body remained intact. Jim recognized a green dress with a pattern on it as belonging to the girl he had brought up as if she were his own daughter. The dress was on the body that he found. It was Jennifer who said it. Jim was looking at what was left of her, and he was well aware that it was all that remained of her. Jim bolted out of the apartment in a state of hysterical panic and he forbade Sharon to come back inside. They did not waste any time and instead dialed 911 to report what they had just discovered. Our location in the event of an emergency. Orange Street Department, 25th Street. Ma'am. Hello. Please provide the address, ma'am. This is the 911 operator speaking, sir. The future holds a great deal of promise for us. I just need to know whether or not she is cognizant and whether or not she is breathing. No, I don't believe she's still alive. Okay, tell me what you think. Is there any chance that we can go in there and get her to lie down on her back? And until the paramedics arrive, we need to begin doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. Please understand that this is a truly horrible situation. She no longer qualifies. Do you think she's using CPR to manipulate you? I do, and in addition, I think there's a sign over here telling me that I shouldn't do it. Could you kindly tell me the woman's name? Thank you. Her name is Jennifer. The Austin Police Department arrived at Colton's apartment in a matter of minutes. They didn't waste any time and started documenting the scene as well as their inquiries. The events that took place inside would present a pretty terrible picture. Jennifer Kay's body was found in the restroom of the cave. She lacked both her head and her handles, and the remainder of her body could be found on the floor next to the bathtub, wrapped up inside a trash bag. A clean shot to the chest which would have killed Jennifer pretty much instantly, was determined to be the cause of death. This was the conclusion reached by the medical examiner. When the body was removed from the bathtub, forensic investigators discovered a 9mm bullet casing laying near the blockage in the drain. 
This bullet would be a match for the handgun that was discovered in Colton's car, which was still on the premises when it was discovered. A machete was discovered inside the dishwasher, where it was found laying on top of plates and cutlery that had most likely been used for food the day before. In addition to that, they discovered a hacksaw that had been used against Jennifer. It was a genuinely horrible scene, and to make matters even worse, the person who was believed to be responsible for her murder was nowhere to be found. The most important question is, therefore, where was Colton? It appeared as though he had left his apartment without completing what he had been working on because his car was still parked outside. The authorities started looking for the individual, and unfortunately for him, he had his phone with him when he ran away. It turned out that Colton was on a really lengthy trip, as evidenced by the fact that his phone had been pinging cell towers all the way from Austin into Mexico for the entire time it was in use. Nobody knew how Colton had managed to get there, and the answer to this question wouldn't be known for another four days after that. At that time, the authorities were contacted by a further concerned parent who had called them. Laura Hall. The father of Laura Hall, who used to date Colton but broke up with him, expressed rising concern. Lauren related to the investigators that he had gotten a message from his daughter Laura in the form of an email. In this email, she made a peculiar request to have him completely gut and empty out her apartment, which was a request that came out of the blue for no apparent reason. Because he realized that his daughter had developed a crush on Colton, he started to get anxious about the possibility that she was spending time with him. Armed with this knowledge and acting on the pings that were coming from Colton's phone, the police searched through several surveillance and road cameras in an effort to locate Laura's car, which happened to be a green Cadillac. To our good fortune, it. It wouldn't take the officers very long to find a picture of Laura's automobile driving into Mexico after crossing the border there. This occurred at 2.41 in the morning. On the evening of August 18, a night after Jennifer had been brutally killed, it has come to light that Laura and Colton were not actually making an effort to keep a low profile. Rather, they gave off the impression of being quite carefree. This picture, taken by one of the owners of the hotel, showed the two of them laughing and smiling at the camera. They looked at the whole thing as just one big adventure. The next day, the two were tracked down at a holiday inn located within the town of Pedro's Negres, and five days after the murder of Jennifer Tate, a Mexican SWAT squad placed a stop to their voyage. It goes without saying that their escape plan would be a resounding failure, as the very next day, the two were tracked down at the Holiday Inn. After being taken into custody, Laura and Colton were both transported to the border between the United States and Mexico, where Colton was ultimately detained and charged with murder. But there was no evidence to imply that Laura was involved in Jennifer's death, so she was permitted to depart of her own choice. On the other hand, there was no evidence to suggest that Laura was involved in the killing of Jennifer. This did not prevent Laura from being questioned later on that day.
and it was during these interrogations that the suspicions around her involvement began to deepen as she contradicted several of her previous assertions. What exactly is going to take place? You are about to be arrested and taken to jail. What did I? You have no choice except to be honest. Are you okay? Colton allowed you in. I took a seat, looked at the first, and my first thought was, what the heck is this? And I thought to myself, who is this? And with that, he whispers, got up. No, there isn't any of that. No, there isn't any of that. I was a young boy. Come and look. The bathroom has a dead body in the tub. Position the machete so that it is on top of it. He claimed that he had dismembered the body. Okay. After he detailed his intentions to you, what did you think he would do to the body? Yeah, it. Did he ask you for assistance in any way? No. It was his instruction that I leave the area. Following this, it would appear that he persuaded her to run away with him to Mexico, threatening her with a knife in the event that she refused. Because of this, she had no choice but to accompany him. Colton maintained his not guilty plea throughout the interrogation process and throughout the legal processes over the death of Jennifer Hay. He said that he had no memory of the things he had done to Jennifer and that he had no idea what had happened. It would appear that Colton was under the influence of both drugs and alcohol to such a severe degree that he passed out when Jennifer was assisting him in entering his apartment. And when he finally regained consciousness, Jennifer had already passed away while she was laying lifeless in his bathtub. It is somewhat difficult to imagine that while under the influence of drugs, Colton made his way to a nearby hardware store where he made purchases including trash bags, an air freshener, cleaning materials, and a hacksaw, before making his way back to his house. Colton was asked by one of the people working at the shop why he required all of this equipment, to which he said that he was going to chop up a turkey. In any case, Colton did not provide any explanation for why he killed Jennifer, and to tell the truth, the prosecution was having a hard time determining a reason. After all, Jennifer was no longer there to fill them in on what had transpired in the situation. Colton claimed that it seemed as though the cloud over his head was beginning to lift just as Laura walked through the front door. After that, he allegedly showed her the body, which was the moment before she became the driving factor behind conceiving a plan. After that, Colton made an attempt to frame his close friend Laura for the mutilation of Jennifer's body. As a matter of fact, Laura was counseled by her legal team to keep out of Colton's court proceedings, therefore she was unable to defend herself against this accusation. In addition to this, he asserted that he would never be able to cause Jennifer any harm because he cared far too much for her. In spite of Colton's outlandish assertions, the circumstantial evidence was so compelling that there was no room for reasonable doubt that he had murdered Jennifer out of malice. As a consequence of his actions, Colton was given a prison sentence of 55 years for the murder of Jennifer Hay.
Since he won't be eligible for parole until he has completed half of his sentence, he won't be able to experience freedom until at the earliest the year 2033, when he will be 51 years old. Since he won't be eligible for parole until he has completed half of his sentence, he won't be able to experience freedom until then. Unfortunately, Laura became entangled in this investigation. Yet, it does not mean that she was completely blameless in any way. She fought for her innocence and claimed that she was forced to accompany Colton. But she was found guilty of tampering with evidence and delaying an attempt to catch a suspect, despite the fact that she did battle for her innocence. As a direct consequence of this, Laura Hall was given a sentence of 10 years in prison. Both the judge and the jury were of the opinion that she played a significant role in the dismemberment of Jennifer and that jealousy drove her to assist in the disposal of the body and in assisting Colton in his escape. However, as of the month of August in 2018, Laura is once again a free woman. She claims that she is not permitted to return to Travis County and that she is not allowed to make any kind of contact with the Cave family. It's not like any of them would desire it even if they could. It's impossible for me to determine whether or not I believe Colton or Laura. The evidence that was left behind at the scene, as opposed to any true ownership, is the source of the truth that we now know today, in contrast to the fact that neither of them accepted complete responsibility for their conduct. We do not fully understand what drove Colton to act the way he did nor do we have a clear picture of the events that transpired on the night that she was killed. However, there is an overwhelming amount of data that points to some type of envy or sick fantasy. As a direct consequence of this, the lovely life of Jennifer Cave was cut short in such a heinous, horrific, and shockingly sudden manner. Even on the night that Jennifer was murdered, her empathetic and encouraging approach was readily apparent. Jennifer, being the kind-hearted woman that she was, could not leave him alone or defenseless in the middle of the night. She was assisting someone who she felt was a good friend who was in a difficult situation, and she was helping this person. Jennifer was unaware for the most part that she was putting herself in a vulnerable position by acting in this manner. After successfully completing her studies at the university, Jennifer was a young woman who was full of drive and eager to start her own life. Instead, the actions of a sick and twisted so-called friend have caused her beloved families to be left with a void in their hearts that Jennifer used to actively fill. This is all due to the actions of the so-called friend. I cannot thank you enough for viewing yet another narrative today. If you found this case to be interesting or if you gained new knowledge from it, then please remember to give a thumbs up and subscribe if you haven't already done so. Additionally, as usual, please leave your opinions in the comments section down below. And I'll be coming back very soon for yet another investigation. However, please keep in mind that you need to look out for one another until that time comes. Goodbye.